Hi everyone. Tonight I would like to bring in my very very good friend and we haven't chatted in a while. Todd Bell. He's a very seasoned cybersecurity leader, chief information security officer and just a great thought leader and a very very good human being. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. Much appreciated. Right out of the gate, I'm not a PhD. I'm just a regular guy with just an MBA and a BS degree. Ansora and I, we met about six years ago, and there's something that we both have something in common. We both have been chief information security officers, and we've been CIOs for companies. And we met actually in Scottsdale going to a convention together. And after the convention, struck up a friendship. And then next thing you know, he created the cybersecurity leadership book. And I did the uh, audio review of this. And this is where we're just so aligned from a philosophical perspective and leadership perspective that this is how we were able to kind of share our experiences in, in the trench moments of what works, what doesn't work, having our butts handed to us from a political perspective good outcomes, not so great outcomes. Uh, and so, so I'm a 15 year veteran that's had the opportunity to work on the technology side of the house and cybersecurity side of the house. So I've got into corporations as a hired gun, going as their uh, interim cybersecurity chief to right now, I've been working with the banking as a service here in Scottsdale and just recently uh, relocated here. And one of the things that's really interesting about my current situation and previous jobs, and that was going to be my topic, is that many of us come from what I call hybrid environments. And what a hybrid environment is, you have a lot of on-premise technology and you have a mix of cloud technologies. And this was the first time that I stepped into a role that was 100% cloud. We didn't have a single server not a virtual machine, and we use what's called resources and data centers. And so we didn't have any enterprise software whatsoever. And where I'm going with this is that how do you go from this little scrappy startup that does this banking as a service, yet can scale and compete against the Wells Fargo's and the Chase Banks and being able to have that kind of firepower, but not have to invest all the millions of dollars and what it really comes down to is software as a service, not owning anything. We don't own any software whatsoever. We use heavily the Microsoft Azure environment. We use an API management platform and custom developed a mobile app that we outsourced to a couple of companies uh, to help develop for us. Yet we're able to scale at a, such a huge perspective of how can we compete as this little scrappy startup against these big behemoth companies that have been around that have invested capitally millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And what it really comes down to is a monthly subscription service to all these enterprise services. Mm -hmm. So the kind of what's in it for your audience members is that if you've ever been thinking about how could I start a small business but have the ability to operate as an enterprise scale company. And if you really start to do your research, you're gonna find out that you can build a mega company in your living room. Yep. And while that seems really strange, 
we did it with a team of 12 people. Mm -hmm. And so where I'm going with this here is that in my company as a chief security and trust officer, I was a one man show. Mm -hmm. I'm used to having cybersecurity teams just like you, Mansoor. Mm -hmm. And in this situation, not only was I forced to have to understand everything of being a full administrator for our mm -hmm. systems and platforms, but also recognizing that automation is really starting to take off to a perspective that when it comes to endpoint management, I can have the Microsoft Azure take care of it for my access controls. I can hire all these third-party vendors that can do all these cybersecurity services for me. So we typically refer to them as uh, security as a service or managed uh, security service provider. And the beauty about this is that I didn't need the mega team that many people uh, want in an organization. And we always hear things about, uh, some people are promoting about how there's this cybersecurity talent shortage. And I think that there's some truth to, like for individual contributors, whether it be security engineers, security architects, business analysts, or system analysts. Yeah, those are certainly in demand positions. But when you get to director and above, there's a ton of talent that's available. Mm -hmm. And the cybersecurity problem isn't as bad as it appears to be. And the thing is, is that what I'm seeing from a future of cybersecurity is teams are actually starting to shrink. And this was an opportunity for me to see what the future of cybersecurity looks like, because I think we've been conditioned. And Mansoor, I think that you've gone through this is that when you're the CISO, you always want more. You're asking for a bigger budget. You want more people. You want more resources. You want more tools. And now that we have the advent of all these cloud-provided services, now we're able to actually scale to a different perspective that it doesn't require all the cybersecurity talent that we're accustomed to. So where this is going is that we're now able to do cybersecurity for pennies on the dollars of what we're used to. So now, Mansoor, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on this here and kind of what you see for the future of cybersecurity, because you're obviously grooming a lot of students uh, for the future and just like to hear your perspectives. Right. So I think that what you're talking about, the very first thing that has to be done is your definition of cybersecurity because is it possible that you are looking at just the security aspects or some other things like that? Or are you looking at the total strategy and the business strategy of the organization? So what is your definition of cybersecurity when you're doing this? It would be all inclusive to setting the cybersecurity vision, uh, what the architecture is going to look like, mm -hmm. uh, what are we going to be monitoring, we're going to be looking at the compliance components, we're going to be looking at disaster recovery, business continuity. Who's meeting the business goals? Who's defining the systems that meet the mission of the organization? And that's usually done jointly with like the CTO, myself, and also my other IT executive peers. And so we help craft that vision. So I get their perspective for what they need from a cybersecurity perspective. And then vice versa, that whenever they're defining uh, future architecture, how do we make business uh, strategy goals? How do we meet customer goals? And so we have this uh, relationship collaborative uh, process mm -hmm. that we help set goals for each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
it almost sounds like somebody, and what is the reporting relationship? Is the reporting relationship between CTO and you? It is. Peers or? Yeah, so I report into a CTO. You report in, okay. So, okay, so therefore, therefore you, so therefore you are actually working in that same way that I talk about in the book, which is that your CIO CTO and the CISO is joined in the hip. They have the more of the strategic mission, business oriented kinds of roles, and you are in that a little bit more on the operational side of things. And together, you have some common things that you work together. You can probably back each other up, and that's probably a great relationship. And that is a good relationship. You talk about the future. Well, the future, I have always said that take this relationship now and remember the old relationship that used to exist between the CEO and the CFO, where the CEO is trying to do the mission and then the CFO is trying to finance it and all that. Yeah. Take the CTO and the CISO, move that up. You really don't need the finance-oriented CEO and the CFO anymore. You've probably heard me say that multiple times because today that digital strategy is the business strategy. You will often find that the finance CEOs and the finance CFOs are going to stifle your situation. They're going to make you cut costs because it is possible when you go into this whole cloud environment, they yeah. often won't understand the true risks of the cloud environment. And it is huge because in a cloud, you have to still have diverse clouds. You still have to have a disaster recovery plan. You still have to own your innovation. You cannot outsource innovation. So the people part, a lot of people, outsource the people part also, the innovation part. That's the part that is your intellectual capital. If you outsource that, you're pretty much dead in the water. That is not a future-oriented company. I don't see that as the future of the company. People that are gonna go that way are going to become hostage to these vendors. They're never going to get the benefits of all the innovation because the vendor might be innovating, but then they will charge you. But you're basically paying for that innovation upfront anyway. Right? Why don't you bring those people in? Yes, I don't want to run the servers. That's okay. But the real intellectual capital, I don't want to ever outsource that. If you well, let me put some parameters around that because we do have the secret sauce of the employees. Uh, you know, when you have a staff of 12, we didn't require to have the mega staff because there are low lower level tasks that could be outsourced. And does that really add a lot of strategic value to an organization? The answer is no, it's something like that. But I think it was from an abstract perspective that if I think about some prior situations, because I do advise companies on their direction and do analyst calls uh, every week, and I get to talk to different organizations and I think that's kind of an interesting perspective about does the CEO really understand what's happening from a technology perspective? Because there's one thing that was very unique to our organization, very, very tech heavy. And if you weren't much of a technologist, it would have been a hard environment for you to thrive in. Mm, okay. And so we have some folks that uh, were definitely not technologists, had the good ideas, 
But the flip side of it is I get to talk to startups and, you know, you look at, uh, you know, for every 10 startups, there are only one is going to really work. You know, one out of 10, 90% yes, of them yes, are going to yes, fail. Right. And where we see that failure point is really at the execution phase. Yes. And they have the great ideas, but they just can't execute. Yes. And that's where these startups fail. Great ideas failing. And yes. so, you know, this is where I think, you know, your leadership perspectives come into play because this is where they blow it. And so, because there, there's this... Uh, component where we've seen a lot of uh, developer turned CEOs. And I'll tell you right now, and I'm happy to go on the record, they're terrible CEOs. I I don't care what anybody says. They just flat out don't know how to run a freaking business. They have a great idea. They know how to code, but running the books, come on, you know, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, that is what I recommend to almost all of them. Yeah, get seasoned people to run it. You still can be the genius behind everything but let somebody run the company and you will do much better. That's what Google did originally, see, if you remember. Well, yeah, they, they had to bring in a real CEO uh, that was kind of the adult supervision because, you know, if you look at the roots of the company, a couple yep. of developers uh, turned executives and yep. incredible accomplishment, don't get me wrong, and I'm not here to diminish anybody's accomplishments, no. but when it comes down to, when you become a publicly traded company or you're asking for VC money, you got to have your A game together. And especially in this current environment, trying to ask for money right now is just painful. Everybody is very scared to loan money. We have so much uncertainty. We got an election ahead of us here. And right now, everybody is kind of queasy about making investments right now. So this is why it's so important to have solid execution, solid leadership, because leadership, if you don't have a good leadership team in place, it just doesn't work. Yep, yep. No, the other thing is that you were talking about outsourcing some of the lower level, but you see, I always worry about succession planning because you talk about lower level. I don't see anything lower. To me, anything that helps me get to my intellectual capital and all that, there is value in that. And so I'm big about building succession into the company. So for example, help desk, a lot of people think outsource the help desk. No, that is where I was building my people. You see, I would rotate them out of there and I would often put even the systems people, second, third level people back in the help desk for a little while because help desk is a very burnout kind of a job. Many of the lower levels are very burnout oriented, but you see, in order to keep people energized, refreshed, I need to rotate them into various parts of the company. So I'm one of those people that don't put people in a straight jacket. I'm always building them so that they will have a broad perspective of the entire company. Well, I agree to a certain extent, and maybe where there might be a little bit of a different perspective, is that we're always constant pressure to, let's say we need a developer and we need to have some low level stuff that we're going to keep the high level work stateside. We're going to keep it with our employees and that's our intellectual capital. And then maybe we need to have some lower level tasks uh, performed. We can have that performed in a different country for a fraction of the cost that we're expected to do that. Now, does that always work? Heck no. 
but it comes down to those relationships weren't uh, set up from the very get-go. And because if you think about, there's been plenty of situations that people did outsource the help desk function. We've seen so many help desks do a 180 that came right back to the States because mm-hmm. it wasn't set up from the get-go. Right. Uh, the economic Often that is the most critical it. element of your entire company. If the support is not good, Oh, and it happens with the executives. Oh, that gets yanked really quick. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, once they have a few of those moments, you know, kind of like, okay, this this is terrible. Uh, I don't care how much we're saving. So I think that what was really critical to our success is that we have a mindset of that we kind of look at things holistically, that we want to look at our employees as the intellectual capital. But I kind of shifted my mindset that, well, my business partners are a part of my intellectual capital. And so when we have partnerships with these businesses, they're strategic vendors. They're not your run-of-the-mill vendor. They're a part of the secret sauce that we need people that can understand our environment, how we operate, what we believe in, what the end goals are. And we try to find those type of partners that are mutually aligned with us. And we usually have those very good synergies because it's how we're able to deliver results very quickly. But that takes a significant effort to be investing in those relationships because I think a common thing that I see with CIOs and even CISOs is always treated as kind of like an us and them. And they're not looking at them as true business partners that this is just an extension of my team. And I see that as a common pitfall, and I'm sure you've seen that many times. Yeah, what I've seen is that they may work for a little while because a lot of these relationships work on personalities. And often when a personality changes or a personnel changes, everything is thrown topsy-turvy. Yeah. If you you remember from my book, one of the things that I talked about even there was that I always saw outsourcing and offshoring and all of that as a danger – to intellectual capital loss. Well, guess what's happening now? We're seeing a lot of reshoring back, right? Oh, yeah. And the problem has always been that, yeah, you think of them as business partners or whatever, but things change, governments change, this changes, that changes. There are just so many possible changes that at some point it becomes unreliable. And in the meantime, you've lost intellectual capital and it's very hard to build that up. Well, I think it takes a lot of work effort where, and I've seen this in the huge corporations where, let's say it's a consumer goods company and they hire HP to be their outsource vendor to run all the IT operations. I've seen such toxic relationships that it comes down to, you know, if you're not investing in those strategic relationships that if they're running your IT, you know, you better have a really good dialogue because when you don't, it impacts the entire organization from a performance perspective because response times are slow. There's no desire to innovate on these platforms. It's just, Mm -hmm. well, I'm just doing the bare minimum. I'm doing what's in the contract, Mm -hmm. Uh, that there's no spirit trying to innovate. And when we look at what's happening right now, we see a lot of retailers that are just bombing left and right. And there's a common theme and what was their online presence? What was their e-commerce experience like? And it's more critical than ever that we have to execute so well 
that there's no room for air. Right now, everybody's got to be hitting on all cylinders because the runway's got really short from a survivability perspective if you're a retailer. And, you know, how does a company like Lululemon shine above all these other vendors out there that are filing bankruptcy? You know, why does Lululemon stand up from the crowd and what are they doing that's so different? And surprisingly, I was on their website and I was just kind of, you know, looking at the company, what they stand for, and also even their jobs, you know, they get you excited where, you know, I was seeing like individual contributor jobs and I was getting excited over those jobs. And it came down to the philosophy, how they operate, what they believe in and right. leadership. And they actually had core values. And so they have a culture. Yeah, yeah, they have a culture. And that is the other thing that is very difficult when you have all these multiple organizations, whether you call them business partners or whatever, they're all going to have different cultures. It's very hard to build a culture within the company. And it's even harder to build that same culture when you have all these business partners that are kind of core to your mission. If they're core to the mission, I would prefer to build that culture myself. But it was absolutely fantastic to talk with you and catch up with you, Todd. I really, really enjoyed catching up with you. All right.